Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you on this weekend, this memorial weekend, this time of remembrance. And Lord, we take this moment to honor those who have given their lives for our freedom, those who have served. We honor and recognize them this day. Lord, above all, we recognize the sacrifice that you gave of your life for our ultimate freedom. That is something that we always will recognize in these gatherings. We ask, Lord, that as we prepare our hearts to receive your word, that you would speak to us that you address us in the deepest portions of our heart by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I want to welcome you here. My name is Randy Tomko. I'm lead pastor here at uh, Rock Point. And a um, couple things. First of all, this is the first Sunday that we have had uh, in this season of time that we have not had a registration. And I'd like to take an opportunity. There are those who have been part of the registration team, with emails and a lot of work that was done, and that work's now done and finished. But I'd like to recognize them. If you just appreciate those guys, they did a great job. And I also want to recognize you as a congregation. We walked through this entire season, and to our knowledge, no one contracted any virus from any of our gatherings. Um, we did not have to shut down again. We didn't have to do any of those features because you were very patient very responsible in managing protocols, and I want to commend you guys for that. Um, We now have this next season of time, and uh, we have freedom, and the scripture talks about the freedom that we have and says also that that freedom is not to be misused in any way, and so please be conscious that if, uh, if you need to be wearing a mask, that you do that. If there are those that are wearing masks, that you don't peer pressure them or, or in any way cause them to be uncomfortable. And if you're viewing by live stream, that you're welcome to come here with a mask or without. That's your decision and choice. So we have our freedom. Let's just use it wisely. Another, just respect those around you. And if they need some space, give them some space, a little fist bump, whatever the case may be. Big sloppy hug if that's what they're into. And then let's find a seat and continue on with our service. morning. We started last week exploring a conversation on the Gospel of John in the Scripture. The Gospel of John is a unique view of Jesus Christ, and we talked about this a little bit last time. It's unique not only for the um, perspective that it gives us regarding um, who he is compared to the other Gospels, the titles he might hold, but it's unique in the way in which John approaches the whole book. He, he, he was led by the Spirit of God to kind of show us that Jesus is really the answer to living. 
He's the answer to the issues that we face, the questions that we have. We looked a little bit at that last week, and we're going to continue on this week. Uh, We began by looking at the very first verses that John gave us in his gospel, from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And we mentioned how pretty much in those verses right there, he gives us the whole story, what you might call the good news of Jesus the gospel message, you know, you, you hear it described a lot of times, what he came to do for each and every one of us. And, and we've been unpacking that a bit. We're going to do a little bit more today. And I want to start by giving you these verses out of John chapter 1. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, we looked at that last week, and we saw that this was basically telling us that, that this Word, who was none other than God himself, that is Jesus, the one who became flesh, who would come later and, and meet with us in a personal and unique way. He was not only God fully, but he also was with his Father, as verse 18 kind of tells us a little bit after this. And so he had a unique relationship. In fact, God himself is a unique being in relationship of love and in community. And that's, of course, ultimately where our love and community springs from. You wonder why those are so central to our life. It goes right back to the nature of God. But then he goes on to say, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so here he's talking to us about what he calls light and darkness, and in a sense this struggle or battle between them. And I believe John has a particular idea in mind here that we're going to look at as we move forward. Some years ago, I was in Colorado with my family, and we had been there multiple times before that, but we decided this time to visit the Cave of the Winds. Has anybody ever heard of the Cave of the Winds? It's an interesting place there where you can go, you kind of go down underground, you, you follow all these ladders down. Pretty big cave. I think some kids found it some time a while ago, and then this became kind of a giant tourist attraction. And as we were down in the cave, all of the people, of course, the guides had lights on, they had head flashlights, they had hand flashlights, and so it looked pretty much like you were in a room that was somewhat darkened, you know, maybe even a room like this if you had all the lights off, somewhat shaded. But then they said, now hold on, everybody hold still, don't move, and watch this. And then they all, at the same time, shut their lights off. And it was pitch black. When you hear pitch black, I think that term was created in the Cave of the Winds because you literally could not see your hand if you put it this close to your face. You couldn't see it. And so even in a a normal room, you would probably be able to at least see something like that, not here, pitch black. And then right at that moment, just one of them turned a small light on, and immediately that light drove back the darkness. And that's the picture that I often think of. I think of the Cave of the Winds when I see this verse because that's really what John is telling us. He's telling us that, notice, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness is all around, as it were. But this light is able to overcome it. The darkness can't overcome it. It doesn't even in some ways perceive or understand the light. But the light has a way of transforming the darkness and not the reverse. I believe what John is talking about here is how in this life that we live... We see a lot of light. We see a lot of beauty. In fact, here what it's talking about is is Christ himself is the light. But I'm sure in many of our lives we could talk about beautiful things, light in our lives, good things. But also we're often surrounded by darkness. There's not just a beauty in life, but there's an ugliness. There's what you might call pain in suffering. And we deal with these things. It's It's quite prevalent, isn't it? In fact, I mean, uh, I, I just ran into it in the last couple days, again, just how prevalent it is. The moment I asked my kids to clean their room, that was it. 
all the darkness. They were telling me how dark the world was, how horrible. We got past it. But the kids suffer with it now, and, and it was suffered with from the very first kids. In fact, if you go back in the Bible, the very book that is arguably the oldest written book in the Bible, believe it or not, is the book of Job. And not only that, but tells a story of somebody who lived very, very far back during like the time of Abraham. And that book is entirely about the problem of pain and suffering. So this is a serious subject. And I think many times we don't take it seriously. We actually want to escape it. Or we try to excuse it away. Or we try to come up with some reason for it and oversimplify it. And I think sometimes that can be a disservice. In fact, there was one particular theologian who came from a country where they had to marry their faith with suffering quite a bit. They were dealing with that in, in their world. Came into our culture, looked around and saw things, and then they were asked, how do you, how do you perceive how people are living out their faith here, their, their religious view? How, what do you think? And his basic answer was, there's no room in their faith for suffering. Now think about that statement. There's no room in their faith for suffering. In other words, suffering has a, a part in shaping their faith, according to him. And I don't think that connects with a world that's looking for comfort and convenience all the time. We think all questions should be answered, all problems solved, all pains dealt with, you know? I mean, we, we don't even like the pain of taking a long time to make dinner, so we have microwaves, right? And then I heard from uh, Pastor Jeff just this week, he told me an article apparently came out that they are now designing microwaves to go faster. Faster? You can cook a hot dog in like a minute, right? But it's got to go faster for us. And so in this kind of a mindset, there's no room for suffering. There's no room for long, drawn-out problems. Problems are there to be solved quickly. Now, that's not to downplay it because I think the reason we want to do that is because pain is, how shall we say, painful. Suffering is hard. And of course... It's a difficult thing. In fact, it, it strikes really right, many people see it as striking right at the heart of God himself. In fact, there's a, a, a thing called the problem of evil or the problem of evil and suffering that's kind of stated this way. Some people would say evil and suffering exists. Do we agree? Evil and suffering is out. The darkness is out there. So either that means God can't stop evil and suffering. That means maybe he's too weak or too unable. Or God won't stop suffering. That might mean he's uncaring, maybe even malevolent. Or God both can't and won't stop suffering. He's all of that. And that, they would conclude, means that he's either not there or, at the very least, he's not really worthy of our worship. And that's the argument. I would be lying to you to say that argument doesn't have some emotional force to it. I think we all, if we're going to be honest, it doesn't matter who you call yourself, what your faith is, you struggle with this issue. And our goal here is not to oversimplify that. I do think we would learn something from a man uh, by the name of G.K. Chesterton who looked at a lot of people who tend to kind of today are increasingly taking refuge in that idea and just casting off God. And he would say this, when belief in God becomes difficult, the tendency might be to turn away from him, but in heaven's name, to what? To what will you turn? We talked about that last week. We're turning to a lot of things as we turn away from God. Is it actually, is it actually working? Are we finding answers? Is our life becoming more coherent? Are we finding what matters and is meaningful in, the, in that pursuit? Are we finding love and relationship? Or are we finding that uh, disappearing and being destroyed? And so that might tell us something here. Maybe we need to press into this issue and this question in a different way. But again, it, it's, a, it's a serious question. 
Even for people who say, I have faith in God, it's a serious question. If you don't say that today, it's a serious question for you too. We're all on the same playing field. Emily Dickinson was a person of faith. She was a poet, but also was a person of faith, strong faith. She wrote many poems about it. But she herself even wrote some of her poems about this larger struggle of the problem of pain and suffering, maybe even the apparent uh, purposelessness of it. And it challenged her. She wrote this one time. She said, apparently with no surprise to any happy flower, the frost beheads it at its play in accidental power. The blonde assassin passes on, the sun proceeds unmoved to measure off another day for an approving God. Wow. In other words, a flower's there, it's beautiful, it's moving, and then the frost just kills it. Is there any purpose to this? To this pain, to this loss? Perhaps we've asked that same question in our lives, maybe not of a flower, but maybe we've asked it about someone else in our lives. I do find it interesting as I read that that Jesus himself talked about the lilies of the field, and he came to a very different place. He said, these flowers might be here today, and tomorrow they're just burned or gone, but God clothes them. He understands them and sees them, and he also sees you, and he will clothe you. So he even sees something that even in the midst of the struggle, he sees a different direction. But it's a real question. And I believe uh, we see that in our own lives, don't we? Not just Emily Dickinson, not just Job, not just my kids cleaning their room. We see it in different ways. Just recently, uh, just in the last couple of weeks, myself, I was praying with somebody whose son has an inflammatory condition in their arms, making it very difficult to work, and they're going through pain. He's been dealing with that uh, since the age of 15. He's now 40. A friend's daughter busted her chin and had to get stitches. I looked at friends in here who are dealing with tumors and other things. We, I know somebody who has a daughter out of the area who's dealing with multiple sclerosis. She goes and visits her. Uh, my family and others, uh, you heard Randy mentioned earlier, have had COVID, many of you. Anything, anybody know anything about COVID in here? Just curious. We've known people in the hospital with it, including some right now. I've known friends who have passed from it, including recently. We lost two others in our congregation just in the last year from it. One of those in particular said something that really stuck with me. They said, before they passed, all I know is how fragile we are, and my good friend Jesus has it all. It's a good perspective. That's what I want to explore We've even been holding, we held a couple of weeks ago, and in a few more weeks, we're holding another one. You can sign up at the Welcome Center online, a discussion on um, wellness, having a conversation on mental and, and spiritual wellness. And this one's going to, in a couple of weeks, is going to be focusing on coming alongside others. How do we do that? Which includes ourselves. You know, how, do we, how do we deal with these issues? So pain is central. It's, it's a struggle. And, and we can say that we, we can simplify it and say that we learn from pain. You know, it teaches us something in this world. There's some truth to that. Robert Browning Hamilton said it this way in another poem. He said, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and never a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. I think each of us in here can say that when we've walked through a difficult situation, a sorrow, a pain, we learn something through it. It shapes something in the here and now even that other pleasures won't. But let's not try to make peace with pain and suffering. I think that's a wrong step. In fact, the scripture does not call pain, suffering, and death a friend to be made peace with. It calls it an enemy. And that's, I believe, how we should view it. But is there some purpose to it? Is there something that God can take out of an enemy and transform that for something good? That's the real question. Or is it just purposeless? Is it something we're just whisking away, trying to ignore, because if we really stared fully at it, it would unravel us? 
I want to look at three encounters that Jesus had that are all told to us by John. And let's look at how the darkness was encountered by the light, and perhaps he will have something to say to us about this. The first one is in John chapter 5. We find in this encounter, Jesus shows up, and we're told sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. They were having a festival there. All the people were coming together. Jesus joined them. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, we're told, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. It was the pool of Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. i got a couple pictures for you because this was buried for many centuries underground. You know how that happens, and then the archaeologists dig it back up. And they actually found the pool of Bethesda in the northeast corner of the city of Jerusalem. And that's it. You can kind of see the columns and stuff sticking up. You can see how it's quite a bit down from where uh, the top level of the ground is. Uh, it's lacking a little spit and polish. If you move to the next one. This is how it would have looked in their day. A little different, huh? I mean, that's like $400 a day spa right there, right? All right, so, uh, but actually that was available to the public. People could just go in and, and, and there was a particular reason some people went there because there was an understanding that at times an angelic presence would kind of come and stir the waters and many of the people there believed if they touched the waters after that, some measure of healing or some impartation uh, to deal with their suffering and pain would, would, would come. And so the story goes on. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie there, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years, 38 years, they were paralyzed. They were waiting. No response from God. 38 years. But they were there this day. When Jesus saw him lying there, we're told, and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? I always find that question interesting. Here's somebody who's been paralyzed for 38 years and is at the pool because of this reputation of what might happen to bring him this answer. And Jesus looks at him and says, do you want to get well? I think there's a reason for this. Let's continue. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me in the pool when the water is stirred. Why would nobody help him there? Who got him there? How did he get there? And and if somebody helped him to get to the pool, they apparently didn't care enough to help him get into the pool. I might tell you something about where this person is at. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. That, that, that time is done. And that's it. He got up and walked. You know, it's interesting to me that this man's faith, his faith was in the water there. He had heard about it, and he knew that water is the thing that could make the difference in his life. And he held on to that all this time. And now here Jesus shows up, knowing that's where his faith is, and he never even addresses the water. He just looks right at him and says, now get up. Walk. I find that interesting. He just bypasses the, the, the element of this person's faith, the focus of his faith completely. Because maybe what he was trying to tell him is, you're, you're looking in the wrong place. The one who can drive back the darkness is standing in front of you. It's not that pool down there. But then the story goes on. We're told, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. I find it interesting. He testified to Jesus. He told people about what answers Jesus had. That's interesting. But this statement to Jesus, is it really hits you. He tells him, stop sinning. Go and live right. So you see, most commentators will realize, and they look, when they look at this, they'll say, this person had sin in their life that led to the condition they were dealing with. 
So for 38 years, they were paralyzed. Who knows? It could, they could have been involved in an uh, insurrection against Rome, and maybe they got injured in the process. It could have been a, a bad deal that went, that went bad for them. Who knows? But somehow, he fell in with the wrong people and ends up paralyzed. And so not only was he there dealing with a physical issue, but he was dealing with, likely, the sin and the shame of having to deal with that. That's why nobody wanted to help him in the water. He didn't seem to have a whole lot of friends. 38 years he dealt with that. You see, when we deal with this issue of suffering, and there is certainly more to it than this, but we need to make sure we don't bypass one of the issues, which is that much of the time our sin, our suffering and pain is because of what we have done to ourselves. It's not just, evil and suffering is not just an issue on the outside, but it's an issue on the inside. And if we miss that, we might miss the whole problem in the first place. From the very beginning of time until now, The line between good and evil has run through the heart of every person. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we're carrying in our lives that's causing some of the pain and suffering that we're experiencing or someone else is experiencing? Sin produces an aloneness. It produces a paralysis. And so the question that Jesus asked him, and I believe asked us as well, Do you want to be well? Because sometimes we will hold on to the very thing that we should let go. But it's so familiar, we keep it close. But I will say this, even if today you're struggling in something of sin and shame that you have not yet let go, don't think that means that you're outside the reach of God. Don't think that means that he won't show up because you're not outside of his heart. And so that is one of the things that we see that Jesus responds to in this. But there's a second encounter because evil is not just the sin that we cause or bring and the pain we bring to situations, but there's something we might call natural evil and suffering, things that just happen. And so we see this in John chapter 9. Now this is a second encounter some time later. As Jesus was going along, he saw a man blind from birth. And the disciples, now it's interesting, look at this, the disciples are like, we figured it out. We watch what happened here. We know now if somebody's dealing with a physical ailment or a pain or suffering, we know it's their sin that caused it. So now they're going to show off, right? They're going to tell Jesus, we figured it out. We know what you're doing. So as soon as they see this man blind, they asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? See, they were remembering that other situation. Who sinned? This man? Was it him? Maybe in the womb? I don't know. How did he sin that he was born blind? Or maybe his parents sinned and they did something and now they're paying for it because he was born blind. But look at Jesus' response. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. Sometimes it's not about what you do. Sometimes in this fallen, hurting world, it just comes. Sometimes we just find ourselves in the predicament. We don't cause it. Like all the situations we listed before. Or more. I know many parents in here who have children and grandchildren and others with special needs. It was 16 years ago when my son was two that my wife and I went and sat down in front of a doctor because we saw he was playing differently than, his, uh, than our nieces and nephews, and we were told that he has autism. Who sinned? If somebody is sitting in here and you just found out that you, you have a, a diagnosis that's not looking too good and, and you don't know what that's going to mean, it could be 38 years you deal with it, but it could be far shorter. Who sinned? If you're struggling with 
something mentally and you and you're feeling depressed and you don't know how to deal with it and or it's it's even worse than that who sinned you see sometimes these things in a fallen world just happen and yet here was Jesus and he was the light of the world there to beat back this darkness in fact he said as long as it is day we must do the works of him who sent me Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, he said, I am the light of the world. You see that? You see the battle between light and darkness? And I find it interesting that he also says this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in this. And that is an interesting statement, that the work of God might be known here. You know, God is not one that takes some sadistic pleasure in pain and suffering. But he does share here, and as we'll see further, some way in which these things will so transform us that it will result in our celebration of him. And that's what's important. And so Jesus brings that moment to this man. It goes on, it says, after saying this, he spit on the ground, he made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Real quick again, this is the pool of Siloam that they excavated recently. And then, of course, uh, right after that, we see what it would have looked like, an actual drawing of it. And... Uh, you can kind of see it pretty Olympic-sized right there. In fact, if you look way in the back there to the center, that's Michael Phelps. He's ready to go in for the 29th gold right there. I mean, that would have been a beautiful pool, but he sent this man to wash in it. And what I find interesting again is Jesus this time is so different than the last time. Last time the man's there saying, the water will heal me. Jesus is like, ah, just pick up your mat and walk. I don't need water. And now this time he sees this guy with no preconceived idea like that. And, he, and what does he do? He puts clay or mud on his eyes and tells him, go wash in the water. What's going on here? Do you know? I'm, I'm waiting. If somebody could tell me, please. <laughs> I don't know, except I can tell you this. There is no formula for how God is going to move. Don't look for it. And don't believe anybody who tells you that if you just get the formula right, if you just have enough faith, if you just check off the boxes in the right order, then you're going to get your guaranteed answer to your pain and suffering because it doesn't work that way. In fact, God did it two different ways here and he continued to do it different. If you look at the scriptures carefully, you'll see there were times when he healed somebody because we're told they had faith to be healled by Jesus. But there's other times when he showed up and people didn't believe it at all and he raised a girl from the dead to the astonishment of her parents and others. They had no faith at all. They didn't think it was even possible. And then, of course, there were people who after Jesus left this world were still there like the man at the gate that they called beautiful in the city of Jerusalem that still wasn't healed until he saw Peter. And then probably beyond that man, there were more. And so it's never been about a guaranteed result. It's never been about a guaranteed formula. It has always been about one who is the light, who can drive back the darkness in the time and in the understanding that he will. And in this person's life, he sent them to this pool with mud and clay on his eyes. I, I can't help but wonder as this man was walking there with this clay over his eyes for the last time stumbling, not being able to see. It's kind of interesting. He couldn't see anyway. Now there's mud there that really ensures he can't see. But maybe that mud was making him think about his people so many centuries ago that had been in bondage in Egypt and had to make bricks out of clay in that bondage until they were finally set free by God. Or maybe he was thinking about how he and you and me are vessels of clay, just fragile. We're all just fragile, but the Lord has us, right? Like our friend said, 
All we know is we're fragile people, but our good friend Jesus has it all. Maybe he was thinking about that, and then as he washed that clay off, he came back set free and seeing again. And so then we're told when Jesus found him later, again, another encounter with this man, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That was a, a title for his divine authority, the one who would come that would have divine authority, the one with, who would be the light to drive back the darkness. And the man didn't know, so he said, who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. You see, he worshiped the light that drove back the darkness. The other man testified to the light that would drive back the darkness. And so there was a result in all of this that ultimately brought celebration and a recognition of the one who has the answers. That's the goal. But what's interesting is this man waited his whole life. The other man waited for 38 years. There was a woman at one point in scripture that had an issue that waited for many, many years. And so all that time, they probably were, how many times did they wonder, where was God in this? You know, whether you believe in God or not, I can tell you what unites us all. One thing about pain, it gets our attention. Am I right? Pain and suffering gets your attention like nothing else will. In a microwave world, it stops you short to think and stop pressing on so quickly. In fact, C.S. Lewis said in a famous statement, it's often quoted, pain insists upon being attended to, he says. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It, pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Our attention, our ears open, we begin to ask questions like why and what is the answer. And again, let's remember as we looked at last week that John's gospel was all about the identity of Jesus. It was about who he was. And it's that identity, I believe, that brings an answer to pain and suffering. And let me share that with you in our final moment together here. Colossians 2 verse 15 says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's the spiritual powers and authorities that bring sin and shame and death and darkness. Having disarmed them, he made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We have this triumph through the cross, the, the instrument of greatest pain and suffering the world has known. A man by the name of Nabil Qureshi was a follower of God and, and was a speaker and, and was dying in his early 30s of a rare stomach cancer. And he said this, of all the horrible things I've experienced, of all the horrible things I've just listed for other people that have experienced, I can't think of something worse than being crucified, he said. And of all the reasons for being crucified, I can't think of anything worse than being crucified for loving the very ones that are killing me. Jesus is familiar with pain and suffering far more than we ever could be. And I believe he walked that path for a reason. It wasn't a show off. It wasn't because he was sadistic or masochistic. It was because he was setting a pattern for those who would walk beyond him into pain and suffering and he would bring something out of it. He is the only one, the cross is the only thing that can unite beauty and ugliness as, a, as a, another poem says in its opening and closing verses, I consider the things every day, everywhere, and I'm perplexed by this, the inseparableness of a world that exists in beauty and ugliness. But, O oh, clever cross, in you alone is solved this great perplexity. For when a Savior hung there for everyone, everywhere, his death turned ugliness into beauty. God's goal is not just to promote our happiness in a moment to take away pain and suffering. His goal is to produce Christ in us that lasts for eternity. 
And when we see that, we might begin to understand this triumph through identification with him, even his pain and his suffering. Romans 8, verses 18 and 28 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And we know that in all things, God works for the good. Not all things are good. All things work for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Years ago, we owned an in-ground pool. And it was always fun to jump in that pool. It was always refreshing. But nothing ever felt better than after hours and hours of sweaty, hard work in a hot sun. Then when you dive in, it feels like nothing you've ever experienced before. It's like, pool of Siloam, here I come, right? It's amazing, that feeling, that refreshing. Well, perhaps there's a fabric in this world where our difficult pain and sweaty suffering produces through that an even greater glory to come. And God is working it in that way. I mean, think about this. If, 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 the, if, if the cross is like a needle that brings something to heal a disease, but that moment is painful, isn't it? Any kid who sits in front of that needle tells their parents, get me out of this right now. And we don't rescue them, do we? We let them experience that pain. Why? Because it's going to produce something of greater health, isn't it? And if the cross is the needle, then the future glory and the resurrection that Jesus promised us and demonstrated is the, is the life. It's the healing. And so what if we knew that heaven, what if we knew that the resurrection was built of bricks that themselves were shaped by suffering? Not clay bricks that just shatter, but these clay bricks now that shatter and break are in fact transforming through the cross into gold bricks then. Would you accept the life of even one day with that? Because I would. Especially if it meant going into an eternity that is even that much more refreshing because of the toil here. 2 Corinthians 4, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs it all. You see, it's achieving for us. It is the raw materials. Our afflictions now are the raw materials of what is coming then. In fact, Jesus was the chief of that. And it was through his cross that he came back to life. Romans 8, verse 29 says, From the very beginning, God decided that those who would come to him, all those who would trust, 38 years, their whole life, whatever it is, those he knew would, should become like his son so that his son would be the first with many brothers. You see, it's a mistake. Now, now hear this. It's a mistake to try to explain away the crosses of life or to talk about how a cross somehow has a silver lining around its splintered wood. Sure, we learn things from crosses. But to reduce it to that is a mistake. A cross can't be reshaped. It can't be refinished. It's what it is. It's heavy. The splinters mark our backs. Sometimes the only explanation for the cross you bear is that you carry it. And as you carry it, you stoop, as you hold it and you're broken and you end up looking like the one who carries a cross. You can't reshape a cross. You have to realize that a cross is meant to reshape you and me. And so Romans 8 verse 17 says, since we are his children, we will share in his treasures in that glory to come. For all God gives to his son Jesus is now yours too, if you hold on to that faith. But if we're to share in his glory, we must also share 
in his suffering. Do you see the identification and the purpose that will be produced through that? We're going to end with this third encounter as we wrap up here, and it's in John chapter 11. Jesus approached a man named Lazarus. It was a good friend of his, and we're told he was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, and they sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. The one you love is sick. He loves you. Even though you're struggling, even though you're sick, even though you don't know where that's going to go, he loves you. And when he heard this, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that I might be glorified through it. God is not sadistic. He's not getting pleasure out of this. What he's saying is, I'm going to transform this in such a way that this will be celebration, that pain will be purpose. Now watch. And so this God goes and his identity answers the problem of evil in what he does with his friend Lazarus, which I just summarized in this next Picture, God can't stop evil and suffering, some say. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. But God won't stop evil and suffering? Is he uncaring, malevolent? Jesus wept. And I will tell you that if you look in the face of the God who weeps, you will see it differently. And God can't or, and won't? He can do neither of those? Does that mean he's not there? Or he's not worthy of our worship? Jesus called Lazarus, come out. And he came out of that tomb. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes. Let him go. Set him free. And that day is coming. That day is coming. For Lazarus, that was four days after he died. Four. For you, it might be four days. For the, the paralyzed man, it was 38 years. It may be 38 years. For the man born blind, it was since the day he was born blind. His whole life you may have to wait four days, 38 years to receive your healing to maybe 38 years to see the one you love again. You may have to wait your whole life. But if we will identify with the one who drives back the darkness, then we will see the light. He has guaranteed it. He has assured it. And ultimately, when we understand this, then I believe it brings us to the place John was trying to tell us, that ultimately, even that healing is not about us. It's really about the one who, as we celebrate what he is able to do with pain and to turn it into purpose and with suffering and to turn it into something of significance, then we begin to celebrate him. And we begin to say, through my witness in this world, even while I wait, through my, my worship, even while I wait, I want you to get the glory from my life. Pain and suffering is hard. Give it to the one who cares for you. Cast all your cares on him. He will transform it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let me end just a quote from Kelvin Miller, who said this. Having answers is not always essential to living, even to the deep questions of pain and suffering. What is essential is the sense of God's presence through dark seasons of questioning. Our need for specific answers is dissolved in the greater issue of the lordship of Christ over all questions, those that have answers and those that don't. A heart and close communion with God helps carry you through the pain 
beyond the power of mere words. Father, we pray that in this moment, there's so many of us in here and each of us could tell a story of pain and suffering. So many watching in who could do the same. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to turn back to you in these things and realize that you, Jesus, are the answer. Not just mere words to a question, but you are the answer to pain and suffering. Transform it in our lives, God. And for those things that we submit to you in faith, God, we will continue to trust that you will bring something greater out of those on that great day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And the church said, amen. There'll be prayer in the atrium if you need it.